fellow Who Gazers, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the new podcast taking you through the world of the target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. We now find ourselves in March 1975. This is lucky number 13. It is the 13th book in the Target series. The first three were reprints of the three William Hartnell era Frederick Muller novelizations, and this is the 10th original Target book in a line dating back to Doctor Who and the Auton Invasion. This is also written by Terence Dix. If the Auton Invasion was Dix novelizing the first John Pertwee, third Doctor story, this is Terence Dix, a little more than a year later, novelizing Robot the first Tom Baker story. So Terence has the privilege of introducing two new Doctors to the Target books line. This book was tremendously important for me growing up age 11 and 12. A little bit later in the program, I will talk about how much the TV story Robot means to me. It's been now just about exactly 37 years since I would have first seen it on a cold February evening in 1985, growing up in the New York City suburbs. I want to talk, I guess, for a moment about the romance of Doctor Who in print. I think for those of us of a certain age, when we grew up, the Target books were not a replacement for the TV episodes, but they were the TV episodes, uh, especially in the UK and other overseas countries where Doctor Who was screened once and then never again for years and years and years. The books were all you had growing up as a fan. For me, as I've mentioned on the program before, I was lucky enough to grow up in a major metropolitan area with cable television, and I was at the center of a confluence of Doctor Who on probably six, if not more, different PBS stations that my cable provider all picked up. I was able to watch multiple Doctors in a week at multiple points in his timeline, but even so, the books are what I carried around to school, on vacation, sometimes out to dinner with a family on a Friday evening. I was immersed in these books for a long time, and of course, here we are now 37 years later, and I'm immersed in them to the extent that it's part of a weekly podcast. But when I look at Doctor Who and the Giant Robot, I am still time-traveling back to February 1985, and I still have vivid memories of where I was and what was going on in my life when I first watched Robot on television. And Doctor Who and the Giant Robot, the novelization, triggers those same memories in me. So we're talking about a 37-year romance with Doctor Who and this little book, to date, it is the shortest book in the Target line, ending on page 124. And since these books start on page 7, it's really a 118-page volume. It certainly has an outside hold on me. Coming up next, we'll be talking about the book line by line and detail by detail. And then a little bit later on, I'm joined by my good friend Stacy Smith, who I've also known for decades. And she is my very first repeat guest. You heard Stacy's voice back on episode 5, talking about Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters. And a little bit later in the hour, she will be joining me to break down Doctor Who and the Giant Robot. Let's get to it.
Doctor Who and the Giant Robot, televised as Robot, written by Terence Dix, from a teleplay by Terence Dix, published March 1975, televised from December 1974 through January 1975. Look, Brigadier, it's growing, screamed Sarah. The Brigadier stared in amazement as the robot began to grow and grow, swelling to the size of a giant. Slowly, the metal colossus, casting its enormous shadow upon the surrounding trees and buildings, began to stride towards the brigadier. A giant metal hand reached down to grasp him. Can Doctor Who defeat the evil forces controlling the robot before they execute their plans to blackmail or destroy the world? The original cover paintings for Giant Robot, and that's three separate scenes on the front cover alone, are a pretty radical design change from the previous 18 months or so of the Target book line. Now, we've got the new Season 11 onward stylized Doctor Who logo, minus the diamond, scenes from the book dramatized on the front and back covers, rather than the usual collection of individual portraits on the front, and a much more comic book style of illustration. Plus, check out that little drawing of Tom Baker, superimposed on the O in Who in the logo. It's an interesting effect, but Baker doesn't look quite right, and this experiment would not be repeated again, although a couple of Peter Davison-era novelizations would somewhat resurrect the effort, with a photo of the Fifth Doctor himself popping up from out of the neon tube Doctor Who logo. On the whole, this style of cover would only last for another year or so. When Target reprinted these books starting in the late 70s slash early 80s, these Roy Lichtenstein-type covers would vanish, largely replaced by more photorealistic paintings not featuring the main cast. Anyway, you don't want to stand here burbling about cover art. It's not just the cover art that's changed. The novelization of Robot has a lot of heavy lifting to do in every other respect, too. For one thing, it's the first Fourth Doctor novelization. In fact, it only came out about two months after Robot had even finished its first broadcast. This makes it the quickest broadcast to novelization transfer up to this point in the target line, which is funny, because it came out immediately after the novelization of the Moonbase, which, at eight years behind, was the slowest broadcast to novelization transfer. But not only is this the first novelization of a Tom Baker story, it's also the first book to feature Harry Sullivan, his debut story, in fact, and the first novelization to feature Sarah Jane Smith and the first novelization without interior illustrations. Sadly, after this, we'd have to wait nearly another full year to see another Tom Baker novelization, with Terror of the Zygons being novelized as Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster in January 1976. So my guess is that, for a certain segment of UK fandom, this book got read a lot during that one-year wait for the kids trying to get their new Tom Baker fix. How well does Giant Robot do, introducing all these changes? Well, that question is answered by pointing to the name Terrence Dix on the cover. To put it flatly, and objectively, pretty awesomely well. In short, this is a lightning-quick read, the shortest target to date, but not a juvenile read. Terrence gets in more than his usual chair of witty jabs and quotably concise descriptions. One thing I wondered about, picking up the book again, was how well Giant Robot was going to capture the uniquely physical and larger-than-life performance of first-season Tom Baker. Pretty darn well, come to find out. 
there's a lot of Baker's physical presence on screen, which is not here. All stuff that Baker and slash or director Christopher Barry worked out in rehearsal, where the book is adapted from Dix's earlier original scripts. So there's no jump roping with Harry Sullivan. There are no non-verbal flourishes like Tom wearing a jeweler's loop or lying back in a Land Rover with his feet up. And no Baker ad-libs like, why is a mouse? When it spins. Baker's first scene in part two sees him lying supine in the unit lab and speaking through the hat covering his face. This scene is included in the part one material in the book and regrettably features no hat talking because Dix hadn't scripted it that way. But what's also surprising is how much of Baker's performance is in here. Even though it's based on material written before Baker acted on the show, you can read the printed words in Baker's voice and not be missing all that much. The fourth Doctor is actually introduced via flashback, with the Brigadier recalling the regeneration a few days after the fact, and getting us up to date on the Pertwee Swan song Planet of the Spiders, the novelization of which is still several months away. Dix takes this as an opportunity to remind us of the two Doctors that he's written for already. The Brigadier, he writes, had already adjusted to one change of appearance by the Doctor. It had taken him a long time to accept that the dark-haired, rather comical little chap who'd helped him against the Yeti and the Cybermen, and the tall, white-haired man who turned up just in time to join the struggle against the Autons, were one and the same. Now he'd had to face another change, and this one had taken place under his very nose. And this is where Dix makes his first attempt at describing Baker's appearance. Quote, a new man, with a new face, was lying on the laboratory floor, like and yet unlike, still tall and thin, still with the same rather beaky nose, but a younger man, the face far less lined, a tangle of curly brown hair, replacing the flowing white locks. Aficionados of the classic series DVD release audio commentaries will be saddened to learn that this book was written before Terence Dix pioneered the use of the word bouffant with regard to John Pertwee's hairstyle. Once the Doctor arrives, shockingly late in the text, page 14, Dix actually takes us pretty deep into his head, and manages to get off some parting shots at Pertwee as well. Quote, For a moment, he stood there in his striped pajamas, as if uncertain what to do next. There was a locker beside the bed. He opened it and looked inside. Clothes, a velvet smoking jacket, check trousers, a frilly shirt. The doctor fingered the elegant garments for a moment, and frowned. They looked as if they fit all right, but he didn't like them. Far too fancy. What sort of a chap would go around, dressed up like that? Sarah later observes that the doctor's unfamiliar face was bright and alert, the blue eyes sparkling, and the curly hair seemed to be standing on end with sheer energy! Exclamation point in original. Naturally, the doctor's, quote, tangled mop of curly hair, unquote, is demonstrated more than once by the Doctor running his fingers through it. After a brief costume change montage, not quite as prolonged as what we got on TV, Dix debuts his description of the Doctor's standard outfit for the first of many, many times. Quote, this time he wore wide corduroy trousers, a sort of tweed hacking jacket with a vaguely Edwardian look, and a loose flannel shirt, a wide-brimmed floppy black hat, and an immensely long scarf completed the ensemble. The multicolored aspect of the scarf is quite some time away, but Dix admits that the outfit did at least bear a passing resemblance to present-day dress. 
Baker's screen presence shows up here, in a scene written before anyone knew what Baker could really do with the part. So what are we looking for, Doctor? The Doctor was sprawled in the back seat, hat over his eyes and apparently asleep, but his answer came immediately. Harry Sullivan is taken with the sea change that occurs between the Doctor's clowning in the first half of Part 1 and his more serious take-charge nature in the second half. Quote, It suddenly struck him that this was a very different Doctor from the wild eccentric who had jumped out of the hospital bed a few hours ago. For the first time, Harry glimpsed the keen mind, the powerful, dominant personality under that flamboyant exterior. There was obviously far more to the Doctor than met the eye. While this paragraph in isolation seems a bit to tell, don't show, there are plenty of other examples in the book of Dick's showing the Doctor's power, dominance, and flamboyance, all without obvious signposting. This book is also where we meet Lieutenant Harry Sullivan, unit medic, for the first time. Dick's includes Harry's character brief directly in the text. Quote, He was a big, breezy young man with a square jaw, blue eyes, fair curly hair, and a hearty manner. Sarah thought he looked rather like the hero of a boy's own paper adventure yarn. He immediately made you think of Biggles or Bulldog Drummond. Of course, the Harry that we got on TV was a muted version of what the character was supposed to be, a brawling young man capable of picking up the action mantle in the event that the fourth doctor was cast as a much older actor. That went away when Tom Baker and his immense physicality got the part, and Harry became a bumbling, one-season-and-done accessory instead, an afterthought to Baker's and Liz Slayton's remarkable double act. But courtesy of the original scripts, Dix here is able to tell us briefly what Harry might have been. Quote, Harry Sullivan was a powerful young man in top physical condition. In his service days, he had often boxed for the Navy. He advanced determinedly on the doctor, quite prepared to use force if he had to. After all, it was for the patient's own good. Dix clearly sympathizes with Harry's getting caught up in the doctor's madcap adventures, as Harry is convinced that he left the Navy, quote, for something very like a lunatic asylum. Of the three regulars, setting aside the Brigadier and Benton, Sarah's portrayal is the most curious. Dix indicated in various DVD interviews and commentaries that he really didn't understand the character, being more used to writing for Joe Grant during her screaming and bumbling days. Here he writes Sarah as lamenting, I'm very keen to get away from all this women's angle stuff, and if I could come up with a really good scientific story, and one is not quite sure if he's empathizing with Sarah's women's lib brief or slightly mocking her. We never get a description of what Sarah looks like, either, even though this is her first book, too. Sarah's big role in the Part 1 material is to develop an interest in Think Tank, of whom more after the break, and coax the Brigadier into authorizing a pass for her to go there, take a tour, and write a story about their frontiers of science research. Of course, because this is a Doctor Who episode with a little time for the main cast to go off on unrelated frolics, Think Tank will turn out to be the big bad of the piece, and Sarah is rightly suspicious of them, leading up to her discovery of the robot itself at the Part 1 cliffhanger in the hands of the correct writer and actress, which on TV were Terrence Dix and Elizabeth Sladen, this is potentially strong material. In the book, though, written before Liz Sladen's input in studio, we can see that Dix didn't quite have Sarah Jane Smith the character's best interest at heart. She gets put back on her heels twice by Think Tank's dynamic duo of evil, the director, Miss Winters, and her assistant, in the book, PR flack, Arnold Jellicoe, whom Sarah at first mistakes for the director. Quote, 
Sarah was furious with them and with herself. It had been foolish for her to assume that the man was inevitably the director, but she felt that the two of them had expected the mistake and were using it to put her in her place. Later, Winters and Jellicoe discover Sarah's lack of hard science training and use the tour to bombard her with impenetrable scientific data. When Sarah then turns the table by sneaking into the abandoned robotics lab that just happens to hold the key to the story, it's strike three on the intrepid Myth Smith. Sarah faints at the cliffhanger moment here, buried inside chapter four, and then when she comes to and is more formally introduced to the robot, she screams as it advances upon her at the end of the chapter, screaming and fainting all at the same time. Thankfully, Liz Slade didn't play the role that way on TV. No fainting, and really no screaming, and because Sarah made such a strong impression on the portions of the young viewing audience, who later went on to produce and write the show, she got to come back and return to the new series and headline her own spin-off. If Liz Sladen had merely acquiesced to the screaming and fainting, then we might have been deprived of that future. After the break, writing for Sarah Jane aside, Terrence does what Terrence does best. Contemporary spy thrillers with a slight sci-fi twist and with tongue firmly in cheek. A new body is like a new house. Takes a little bit of time to settle in. As for the physiognomy, well, nothing's perfect. Have to take the rough with the smooth. Mind you, I think the nose is a definite improvement. As for the ears, well, I'm not too sure. Tell me, quite frankly, what do you say to the ears? Well, I really don't know. Well, I... of course you don't. Why should you? You're a busy man. Yeah. You don't want to stand here burbling about my ears, neither here nor there. I can't waste any more time. Things to do. Places to go. I'm a busy man too, you know. Thank you for the most interesting conversation. Must be on my way. There's absolutely no question of you leaving, Doctor. Now you go back to the infirmary. I mean the sick bay. Get into bed and stay there until I say that you can get up. How can I prove my point? I... I feel I ought to warn you, Doctor, that there's grave danger of myocardial infarction, not to speak of pulmonary embolus. Yes, I should. I should. Mother, mother, I feel sick. Send for the doctor. Quick, quick, quick. Mother, dear, shall I die? Yes, my darling, by and by. One, two, three. In publication order, this is the first novelization to lack internal illustrations. I knew this wasn't the end of the line for illustrations, because I clearly remember them from books published shortly after this one. Doctor Who and the Green Death, I'm looking at you, or rather will be in a couple of weeks. But Giant Robot is now lacking the familiar illustrations by Alan Willow credit on the copyright page. My thinking is that because Giant Robot follows so closely on from the airing of its parent story, barely two months between the broadcast of Part 4 and the release date of the first edition, there just wasn't time for Willow to work his usual magic. None of the books released after 1975 will carry interior illustrations, so we've reached nearly the end of the line for this phase of the novelizations, and that's going to be a pretty big loss. Before the break, we talked about how Terrence Dix handled his first time out with this doctor, Sarah and Harry. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about the rest of the book, which is based on Dix's own script, which he once referred to as an affectionate homage to King Kong. The TV serial has a special place for me and my fandom. At age 11, 
I was homesick from school one day and watched the last nine minutes of Robot Part 1, which I'd recorded onto VHS while summoned away on a late family errand the night before, pretty much on endless loop all afternoon. In my head even now, whenever Patricia Maynard as the evil think tank director Miss Winters says, I'm not sure you should know about that, Miss Smith. The eye is always partially cut off, because that's exactly where my recording began. Anyway, if you're asking me to be objective about Robot, not going to have it. You want to complain about Christopher Barry's direction, the action man to a tank in Part 3, the floppy prop doll standing in for Sarah Jane in Part 4. I don't care. This story rocks. Dix's prose style, which sails by crisp and smooth even in much shorter books, is on top game here. It's got another of his evocative opening sentences. It moved through the darkness, swift and silent despite its enormous bulk. The best opening sentences always start with it, right? The soldier, killed by the robot in that opening scene, spends the last paragraph of his life complaining about the cold and boredom of guard duty, because Terence likes to lampoon the banality of Doctor Who's numerous red-shirt soldiers in their final moments. Charmingly, Terence writes all the dialogue of his story's eponymous robot in capital letters. This is a clever editorial device. It also lets you know the book is being written with tongue planted firmly in cheek. I am Experimental Robot K-1. My eventual purpose is to replace the human being in a variety of dangerous tasks. It introduces itself. Jerry Davis will, if memory serves me right, repeat this trick for portions of the Cyber Controller's dialogue in his coming novelization of The Tomb of the Cybermen, that character also being played by the impressively loud Michael Kilgariff. You get pathos with the robot, though, too. Slowly, the robot swung round to face Sarah. Lights were flashing agitatedly on its forehead, and Sarah could have sworn that she could see the anguish in its great metal face. This book also allows Dix the space to do something that's always interested in him, discuss politics and political figures. That is the last story of the Barry Lutz era, an era that mostly took place on near-modern-day Earth, and which usually figured mid-level politicians as secondary bad guys and prominent subplots, Robot is very much in keeping with its predecessors. While the only, quote, man from the ministry in the story is Harry Sullivan in disguise, the bad guys are the SRS, the Scientific Reform Society, the group of radical government-funded scientists who feel as if the government would work better if they were in charge. I'm sure the SRS, as devised by Dix in 1974, it was more than a little to the SDS of the late 1960s. There's a kernel of truth to the SRS, especially in the person of Professor Kettlewell, the robot's inventor, brought to life so perfectly on TV by Edward Burnham with his wild gray hair tangles and subtle hand tremors. Dix introduces Kettlewell as he, quote, puffed furiously at a stubby pipe, sending out a shower of sparks that threatened to ignite his bushy beard, which, by the way, is one of the great Terrence Dick's one-sentence descriptions of all time. Kettlewell, was shown, dropped out of society to develop alternative, i.e. green technology, but by part three is revealed to be the mastermind behind SRS, rather than merely a harmless crank. While we know today that everything Kettlewell says about the environment is correct, most of the SRSs are shown as fascists, willing to use their threat of nuclear holocaust to advance their aim of preserving the environment. It's hard not to feel sympathy for Kettlewell, though, even though as Terence, half-lovingly and half-mockingly, describes his grand scheme. A complete, 
turnover to pollution-free power that would put a stop to the gradual destruction of the ecology of our planet. He was quite undeterred by the fact that the proposed changes were so enormous that it would take a world dictatorship to put them into effect. Kettlewell does learn the error of his ways. Quote, Sarah could tell by the expression on the little man's face that the ruthlessness of his associates was having a shattering effect and has time for poetic regret before the robot inadvertently kills him. Dix writes, Reluctantly, Kettlewell pressed a series of controls. The digital clock above his head clicked into life. The numbers began to count down. 599, 598, 597. They seemed to flicker across the screen at tremendous speed. With a sense of rising horror, Kettlewell thought he had never realized how short a second really was. 590, 589, 588. Busily, the numbers flickered on, ticking away the life of the planet in measured seconds. When Sarah is smuggled into an SRS rally during the Part 3 material, she observes that the everyday faces around her are afire with terrifying fanaticism. That's another classic Dix modifier, by the way. Terrifying. Right up there with strange or terrible or gleaming. And there's another Marie Celeste reference, speaking of Dick's favorites. Miss Winters, Angelico, the two think tank villains, and high ops on the SRS also benefit from Dick's keen eye for writing bad guys. Angelico is nervous and fussy, and combed his thinning fair hair carefully across a spreading bald patch. Miss Winters never wasted words and finds that Jellico gets on her nerves. And that's just in their opening paragraph alone. You can pretty much figure out their story arcs just from that one paragraph. Later on, Sarah refers to Miss Winter as a, quote, strange woman, because strange, Terrence Dix. She's also, in the end, quite mad. Miss Winters acted almost without thinking. If she couldn't have victory, she would have revenge. If she couldn't rule the world as she had planned, she would end it in flames. Dix also knows how to write action sequences. While the book is shorter than his earlier masterpieces, such as The Auton Invasion, there are still plenty of gun battles and chases in the back half of his story. As unit soldiers vainly fire their submachine guns on K-1, quote, Sarah can actually see the bullets spattering harmlessly off the gleaming metal body. And there's that word gleaming again. And because this is a book, rather than Christopher Barry's fiscally beleaguered end-of-season TV production, Dix is able to imagine that the robot costume was capable of much more strength and agility than the balsa would prop in which Michael Kilgariff was encumbered on TV. Dix writes, Before they could open fire, the robot smashed them down. A huge wooden crate of scientific supplies stood near the door. The robot lifted it like a matchbox and slammed it against the laboratory door, blocking it completely. On TV, of course, not so much. Similarly, reading the book, you do not have to worry about that action man toy tank. This tank has a commander, is termed a metal monster, and glowed red before it exploded into nothingness. And instead of dodgy CSO effects, this robot's giant feet stamped a Land Rover into twisted metal and picked up a lorry and flung it across the fields. Heck, there are fighter planes which dive-bomb the robot, another King Kong reference, and something Christopher Barry really couldn't have afforded. As you also expect from a Dick's book, there's plenty of dry humor, and the chance for the Doctor to make a spectacle of himself. 
as he tries to disrupt an SRS meeting in a scene brought fully to life by Tom Baker on TV, we see that Baker was acting to Dix's mind's eye. The doctor managed to perform quite a creditable little jig, Dix writes. His manner and appearance were so irresistibly comic that several of the audience began to laugh. Someone actually started clapping. The doctor seemed much encouraged. Thank you, sir, thank you. Now then, what about a few card tricks? He produced a pack of cards and sprayed them up in the air in a kind of fountain, catching them neatly and shuffling them back into the pack. Miss Winters was furious. The carefully built-up atmosphere had been completely destroyed by this mountebank. He seemed perfectly capable of keeping these fools happy until the brigadier arrived to lock them all up. In terms of scripted material that was cut for TV, there is surprisingly little here. In part three, after the brigadier learns that Harry has been outed as an undercover agent at Think Tank, he and the doctor in the book have time to pay a visit to Think Tank's now deserted offices before heading for the nuclear bunker, where the story's final act takes place. This material was likely cut for time, during the very forced and compressed circumstances under which the story was made, but we get it back in the book. And as usual, whenever someone, a doctor who visits a deserted building, someone here, the doctor, mentally compares it to the Marie Celeste. The bunker itself was also bigger than the jerry-rigged elevator shaft that we saw on TV. Here the bunker is, quote, a massive concrete building, nestled in a tree-surrounded hollow just ahead of them. It was built in the shape of a squared-off letter U, its two long wings linked by one short one, which was crowned with a tower. The concrete path led between the two arms of the U to a massive metal door, which formed the only break in the concrete facade. Terence later reminds us that the bunker was obviously made of no ordinary concrete, too. The countdown clock inside the bunker in the book is set to a leisurely 600 seconds, which equals 10 minutes, as Terence helpfully tells the younger readers. That was lowered to 300 seconds on TV, presumably as Christopher Barry felt that 10 minutes was too slow for a fairly fast-paced four-part story. In the original script, the nuclear missiles whose launch codes are stolen by the SRS belong to the various European nations. But on TV, someone, probably brand new script editor Robert Holmes, changed that to the three superpowers, the US, the USSR, and China. Terence in the book also predicts that one of the new African states has just gotten atomic power, too. Moving from novelization to plain old effective storytelling, Terence milks every bit of emotion out of the final Dr. Sarah scene. Sarah is disconsolate after the doctor destroys the robot. In the new series, this scene would have had the companion defiantly reject the doctor's solution and end on a note of sad ambiguity, but that's not really in Terence's playbook. He writes, He produced his key and opened the TARDIS door. Come with me, Sarah. Sarah looked at him. The very idea was ridiculous, of course. She had deadlines to meet, commitments to honor. If she went off in the TARDIS, there was no telling where or when she'd end up, or what kind of terrifying danger she'd run into. She looked at the doctor. His whole face was alight with mischief and the joy of living. Come with me, he said once more. Sarah smiled. All right, she said. The doctor beamed. After the doctor and Sarah persuade Harry to come along, at the last minute the brigadier gets the final word, after the TARDIS vanishes. The brigadier sank down upon a stool. Well, bless my soul, he said indignantly. He's off again. And so he was. And so he was. But not us.
It's ten more months until the fourth doctor returns in the target line. Coming up after the break, my guest for the second time on this program, Stacy Smith. are back now and I am thrilled to be joined by my very first repeat guest. My eagle-eared listeners will know that Stacy Smith, the incomparable Stacy Smith, was my very first guest way back in episode 5 after four very sad episodes of me talking to myself. Stacy came in and livened up the program and I've had guests in every episode since and now here for episode lucky number 13. Stacy is back. Stacy, thank you so much for rejoining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. It feels like only yesterday I was here. <laughs> it was yesterday, plus two months ago. <laughs> we, we live in some, some weird time zone, yes. I should point out we are recording on Groundhog Day, so it's possible that we're going to have this conversation over and over and over again until February 3rd finally arrives. <laughs> so I've been seeing a lot of you on uh youtube the last week or so i saw you participate in one academic conference and then i saw a youtube video that features you that has nothing to do with academics at all so can you bring me and my listeners up to date on what you've been doing outside of the world of doctor who yeah, so in, in my, my day job, I'm a professor of disease modeling. So uh, I was recently on a kind of like, uh, it, it, was a, it was a university kind of based thing that was actually done for the federal government. Um, so I was invited by professors at different universities um, to give a talk on basically like, you know, what are the, the long term effects of COVID? More specifically, could a COVID vaccine make things worse? The answer is clearly yes, if people abandon other protection options. So if you stop wearing masks and stop distancing and so on, which a lot of people are doing because there's a vaccine, whether or not enough people are vaccinated. So yeah, that was that was interesting. And I didn't actually discover till afterwards that it was this like US government sort of conglomeration of like scientists from across the country. Um, so that was that was quite entertaining. Uh, but the other thing that I was doing was I was on a reality TV show um, back, well, I, we filmed back in July, but it's coming out this month. It's called Dating Unlocked. Um, it's a Canadian TV show. I, I believe it's available elsewhere as well. Um, but in Canada, it's through Amazon Prime. And yeah, I was one of the contestants. And so they've released the trailers and it's happening um, because I figure why not be a reality TV star in addition to all the other things on my CV? What is the focus of the dating show? I imagine this is a very calm, old fashioned show where it's two people sitting in an oak paneled restaurant um, talking very <laughs> calmly about philosophy and uh, physics and the weather. I'm not sure I ever went on one of those dates. Yeah, no, this is an LGBT dating show. Um, and uh, it's for Out TV, which is a sort of subsidiary of Amazon Prime. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a bit lascivious. There is, you know, not just sitting in oak paneled rooms chatting about philosophy. There is, there's, uh, I think you see from the trailer, there's, there's on screen kissing and uh, clothing removal and stuff. And yes, I was, I was in a bikini, um, you know, doing a, a painting. And <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, fun things were happening. Considering that most of my television watching over the last year has either been Doctor Who or the glacially paced Book of Boba Fett, that trailer was definitely a little more risque than what I'm used to. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really wasn't sure what to expect either when I turned up. So I, I, I just kind of, I found this by just applying online. I, I was on a dating app and they said like, hey, do you want to be on a reality TV show? And I was like, oh, what the hell? And the only thing I had to do was record two, three minute videos. And I was like, I record videos on Zoom all the time for my classes. So sure, I'll give it a go. And I turned up and I asked everyone else, I was like, oh, how'd you find this? And they all said, oh, my agent. And I was like, what do you mean agent? And it turned out this is how young people today break into TV. They do reality TV shows and their agents find them a thing. And I was like, I'm just some rube from the internet. I just applied out of the blue and got it. And so, yeah, I think they were actually quite happy to have me because I had a, quite a different CV to the rest of them because they're all talking about fashion and TV and I'm talking about science and <laughs> polyamory and things that I'm interested in. So you were the one person who showed up without an agent and a list of demands and... Uh... Exactly, yes, yes. There were no green jelly beans. <laughs> You didn't have your own stylist? I, I did not. No, I, I actually, I did my own kind of like, you know, basic hair. And then they, they kind of like worked what I did into something much, much more impressive because I'm fairly new to makeup and hair and stuff like that. So I was really out of my depth. So I'll have to say that out of all the episodes that I've done for the show and all the guests that I've had, this is only the second episode that I've done with a guest in the same time zone as me. And you're actually a repeat guest. The last time that you appeared, you were actually on the opposite side of the international dateline. And one of the things I enjoy talking about with you is that you and I are never in the same time zone twice because I persist in my humble existence in the Eastern time zone where you continue to roam the planet. Uh, where are you this time and where were you last time and where will you be next time? <laughs> So yes, I, I am actually a home, such as such as I have a home uh, in Ottawa. So yes, I am on on Eastern time um, for the moment. Anyway, I was in Australia until uh, about two weeks ago. Um, I, I'd gone to Australia for a couple of months actually because I sort of thought, well, it's where I grew up. So I went back for you know to visit friends and family. But I thought, well, it's harder to get around these days, so you might as well go for longer um, and make it worth it. So yeah, I spent a really decent amount of chunk there, and then I was foolishly teaching from Australia on Canadian time. So my classes were two in the morning, 3.30 in the morning, midnight and 5 a.m. That was my week for two weeks <laughs> before I left. <laughs> oh so yeah, it was a nightmare. And then we were doing job interviews. So the job interviews were happening between 6 and 8.30 in the morning. And I'm trying to be on the committee assessing candidates going like, I have no idea what my name is, let alone what questions to ask. <laughs> so yes. And then I probably hopped on a plane and then flew across the world. So yeah, the jet lag has been very strong. So yeah, I don't know where I'll be next time. <laughs> At a conservative estimate, as if you do anything conservatively. How many countries have you visited so far? Oh, it's probably around 50-something, I think. Um, I, I did travel nonstop for two years. So I was on sabbatical and I was all over the world. Um, I mean, I did a number of repeat ones. I worked in Cameroon twice during this period. But um, yeah, I was, I was here, there, and everywhere. I have, I have a tattoo on my leg where I'm coloring in all the countries I've been to. So that's been very fun to do. Kids, don't try that at home. Yeah. <laughs> No, really. Pay, pay for good work. It's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> for my purposes, I've been to five countries on two continents over six decades with my first international trip back in the 70s. So I have a long way to go. I think you're pretty safe uh, for me ever catching up with you. <laughs> That's true. I guess my first international trip wasn't until 1995 when I moved to Canada. So you, you had a head start on me there. And then I visited you in Canada, I think in 97, when you were in right. Hamilton, if memory serves. I was in Hamilton, right. yes. 
Yeah. And we watched a very grainy nth generation reconstruction of the savages. That's right. And <laughs> put everyone else to sleep. <laughs> but uh, you and I, we were hardcore. We hung on. <laughs> our significant others were both there on the same couch. And I think one of them lasted until episode two and the other one was out within about 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. I, I think they said later that was the best sleep they'd ever had. <laughs> <laughs> and then you and I discussed the episode for the next two hours after that. So they had no motivation to wake up and catch the conversation. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Good times. And speaking of well-traveled, your copy of the book that we're discussing today, which is Doctor Who and the Giant Robot, also has an interesting travel pedigree. You and I were talking about this last time when I booked you for this week. Tell me a little bit about where that book has been and what sort of uh, travel markers it has acquired. Okay, so back in Australia, when I was about, I think, 10 years old, um, my father came home one day and he said, oh, yeah, Peter Davison is in the next suburb over signing books. And I was like, what? And he said, do you want to go? And, and this was very unusual. Like, we didn't go on outings like this. <laughs> so the idea that I was getting to go, I mean, I just thought he might be telling me he's here and I would have been happy with that. And he said, oh, my God, I get to go. So my dad took me to see Peter Davison. And I was like, oh, my God, Doctor Who is here. And he was the doctor currently. And so that that was incredible to me. And so I stood in line and, I, and my dad said, why don't you bring a book? And so I grabbed a, a book and I remember I grabbed um, The Tenth Planet. <laughs> I don't know why, but I hit the 10th planet. And when I got there, they were selling books. And my dad said, oh, you know what? You can buy one. Like, you know, I'll, I'll pay for you to have a book. And I thought, oh, my God, I get to have a new Doctor Who novelization. This is amazing. Like, this is already the best day ever. And so, you know, I lined up, I looked at some books, and I chose an appropriate book. And I went up to Peter Davison, and I presented him with Doctor Who and the Giant Robot. And Peter Davison looked at it and he looked at the cover, which doesn't have a picture of him on it. It just says the robot. But he looked at the cover and he looked back inside. And he looked at the cover again and he looked back and he said, this isn't one of mine, is it? And I said, nope. Because to me, at 10 years old, the doctor is the doctor. I mean, I was like, well, I liked the robot. <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, mm -hmm. and I'm just like, like, I'm kind of sort of thinking like, maybe I've made a bit of a faux pas, but there's nothing I can do here. And, you know, and I think my thinking was also like, well, surely they wouldn't have sold books that you know, weren't appropriate. <laughs> so why were they even selling that one? They didn't want him to sign it. Anyway, so I'm just standing there and he's like, oh, okay. He just sort of shrugs and he's like, okay, well, so he signs it. So I have the only copy in the world of Doctor of the Giant Robot signed by Peter Davison. And he and he, he said g'day because he was in Australia. So that was lovely. Um, and then, you know, he handed me my book back and I started to walk away. And then I had a thought and I thought, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm not done. Like I can't walk away without touching Doctor Who. I have to touch him. <laughs> I'm 10 years old and I think I've got to, I've, I've got to touch him somehow. And so by this point, he's signing the, the next book and there's some girl that he's signing for and he's writing away. And so I sneak up and I touch like just the middle of his like ring finger. I just like swipe my finger down that. And then I run like I have never run before. <laughs> I take off. And I don't know what I think is going to happen. I don't know if I think Peter Davis is going to chase me out into the store or something. But anyway, I flee. And so my dad is waiting for me outside. And I was kind of like, okay, we're all done. we got to go. <laughs> so we go. And, and I told my dad. And he, he said, oh, why didn't you just offer him your hand for a handshake? And I was like, it honestly never occurred to me. Like, I was like, that's the kind of like manly thing that my dad would have done. But like, I'm that's beyond my capabilities. I'm just going to touch a finger and run. <laughs> so yes. So I touched Doctor Who and that was my, my claim to fame for many, many years. But there's the part two to this story, which is that many, many years later, I, you know, now I'm a guest at a convention and 
you know, I'd seen Peter Davison around and we actually, we got in like nodding terms. Like I'd see him in the corridor, like, you know, sort of the bowels of the hotel and he'd see me and he'd sort of like nod, like he sort of vaguely knew I was somebody he's sort of seen around. And I was like, this is amazing to me that Peter Davison kind of sort of knows that he should nod to me. Like he has no idea who I am, but he just sort of nods at me. I was like, oh, this is, this is amazing. And we were waiting to go on stage at one point and things were just, you know, waiting for closing ceremonies. We're just waiting, waiting, waiting. Peter is there uh, and Janet Fielding is also there. There's a few other people and there's nothing to do. We're just standing around. And I think I, I think I talked to Graham Burke and I said, like, I kind of want to tell Peter Davis my story. And Graham is like, don't do it. Like, do not. Do it. I was like, no, no, I'm doing it. I'm going in. <laughs> and so I, I told him this whole story and he sort of like nodded like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that trip. I remember going to Australia. And and then I told him the story about like touching his finger and he just kind of like kind of nodded and shrugged. And I was like, do 10 year old boys touch him all the time? I don't know how this works when you Peter Davison. But anyway, it was he was just pretty, pretty sort of blase about it. But Janet Fielding, she found this hilarious. She's like, oh my God, this is so funny. And then she was like, how old were you? And I was like, oh, I was like 10. And she was like, I was just hoping you were going to say 25. <laughs> that would have been absolutely hilarious. <laughs> so yes. So Peter Davison now knows that I was the one who touched him in Sydney on the finger, I hasten to add. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I will ever hear a story that tops that one in terms of physical encounters with a doctor. <laughs> Let's hope not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. So is this your only novelization that is signed by the wrong doctor or have you made a habit now of making sure that any novelization you have signed is sung by the, is signed by the wrong actor? I should totally do that. I never actually thought of like collecting a set. That's actually brilliant. <laughs> like, you know, you run into David Tennant at a convention and have him sign a Peter Capaldi novelization or. Oh, that'd be, that'd be absolutely brilliant. Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, I mean, I, I could get, uh, you know, Colin Baker to sign an Eric Saywood novelization and just really set the cat among the pigeons. <laughs> oh, He'll probably just hand it back and refuse to sign it on general principle. <laughs> So in terms of the book itself, Doctor Who and the Giant Robot, uh, what about this book speaks to you and how did you come to volunteer to talk about the book on the program today? Uh, so I, I pretty much volunteered to talk about the book because of this story. Uh, I mean, the, the meta story around the, the signed copy is, is you know, brilliant. But I, but I reread the book, of course, for this episode. And I was like, oh, I love this. This is so great. It's, it's somehow quintessential Terrence Dicks. Right, it's Terence novelizing one of his own stories. Uh, I'm sure that was the first one that he'd written that he novelized. Um, in fact, it was probably the only one for quite a long time. Uh, I guess Brain of Morbius he did later, which didn't have his name on it and was heavily rewritten. But um, you know, because he didn't do the War Games, and then you know, he, he didn't actually write that many at the beginning. Uh, and so it's it's Terence like doing stripped down Terence. So he's he's got this absolute kind of like compactness happening even beyond his normal compactness. Uh, so. It, you, you know, you fly through this novel. Like I, you know, I sat and read it and, you know, it was like, well, that was an hour that went by. Like that was lovely. Um, so you know, I, I think, you know, if I re read some other books, you know, they, they take some serious time investment and so on, whereas Terrence books really don't. Um, and actually, Jason, I remember when Terrence passed away and you recommended The Power of Kroll as, as just a sort of like kind of, I guess, average Terrence Dick's novel to read. And I did the same thing. I sat and read it and just was like, wow, that was my lunch break. That was, that was incredible. Um, so, uh, 
I, I mean, the reason I picked it in the first place back when I was 10 was because I just love the story and it really evokes the story very well. I mean, it has a few extra touches here and there and it, it you know, smooths some things over in some other places, um, but it just, it's really good at evoking the, the original story. And I love that story. I love, I love robots so much. I, I did robot for the original Outside In um, collection that I edited. Like that was my choice of story, partly because in some ways it's the most average Doctor Who story. And that's great because I love Doctor Who. So the average Doctor Who story is a great thing. <laughs> but kind of the way that you had Peter Davison sign your Tom Baker book, Robot is Tom Baker starring in a John Pertwee story. Because it's made at the end of season 11. It's the only non-John Pertwee episode of the season. In fact, I think it was filmed at the exact same time as Planet of the Spiders. So you have, this is a unit story. You've got the Brigadier and Sergeant Benton. And you have the same unit set, and you have the fourth doctor driving Bessie for the only time. So if you have the wrong doctor signing your novelization of the book, it kind of fits because this really is a John Pertwee story. And reading the novelization, it seems to me that this is often, this is just Terrence writing for the John Pertwee doctor. There are a couple of lines in there that you would never imagine Tom Baker saying in a million billion years. But if Terrence is writing the book, and the book was written before Tom Baker's first television episode even aired, it makes perfect sense for him to just write in default third doctor voice. So on page 119, Harry passed the doctor the plastic bucket. And this is, of course, the bucket that has the antiviral solution that will be used to to destroy the robot. I'll drive you, doctor. And the doctor replies, thank you, my boy. That is peak John Pertwee. That is not <laughs> at all. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, like I would say that's, that's a phenomenon you see a number of places. I think, um, you know, the novelization of time and the Rani sounds very much like Colin Baker throughout, like even, even more than, than even the episode does. And there are some Colin Bakerisms even in, in the script, like when, when, you know, Sylvester McCoy says mop my brow to the runny. Like there's no way that that's a seventh doctor thing. That's clearly the sixth doctor. So, you know, one might say, well, maybe there's sort of some, you know, bleeding over between doctors at the regeneration point or whatever. Um, or it's like, of course you're going to get that because a person's very used to sort of dealing with one doctor. And presumably Terrence at this point has been writing like third doctor novels for quite a while. He's got that voice down and so on. Um, so yes, I, I mean, I would say, that's mostly true about it being a third doctor story, except that when you take out John Pertwee's doctor and you put in Tom Baker's doctor is really different in lots of ways. Like it's got the structure of the third doctor story. You know, you're, it's got unit, it's got, you know, like they're running around the countryside and there's, you know, like a homegrown menace and yeah, you know, it's got all that stuff. And yet you, you change the leading character and you change it for Tom Baker and it's, it completely changes the tone. Like, I, th- I think that like, like what the doctor is doing is is so different from what his predecessor did and i think the novelization echoes this because i mean the I, almost almost half the book is is episode one i mean there's a lot of time spent on kind of like you know establishing this new doctor and you know kind of like people's reactions to him and so on and and kind of all the thoughts about like oh yes you know yes he really is the same guy like you know like you know they're, they're sort of like working through their their adjustment to the regeneration um which is sort of deeper in the novelization than it is on on screen whereas the the later three episodes of sort of more just a transcript of what happened you know on tv um but i think that the amount of care that terence has put into kind of like establishing this is sort of probably where everybody was is like you know is this even going to work with this new guy and then also like what the hell is this new guy doing because it's amazing so this book was basically rushed to market right it is filmed i think in june 74 
and the TV episodes air December 74 through January. Book has a street release date of March. That means it was probably finished and edited and sent to the galleys before episode one or part one even airs on television. Mm. So let's break it down then. What do you think? And I realize this question uh, could potentially have a very, very long answer. What were Tom Baker's biggest attributes as the doctor? In other words, when you're sitting down and trying to think what makes Tom Baker the Tom Baker doctor rather than Colin Baker or uh, Peter Capaldi, what are his hallmarks or, or top attributes? So I, th- I think the fundamental thing about Tom Baker is that he comes at it from like just a bizarre angle, right? It's like he's making acting choices and kind of like inflection choices and stuff in, in a way that is very alien. Um, and, and I think in, in many ways, like we didn't really think of the doctor so much as an alien until Tom Baker, like, like he was sort of like this, this trickster figure kind of thing. Um, you know, and, I mean, he wasn't even explicitly alien for a while um, in the early days, but then like, he doesn't get read as an alien. And particularly in the John Pertwee era, he doesn't, he's very, you know, very human. Um, and Tom Baker by virtue of being Tom Baker is just so, so bizarre in, in some of the things he does that you're kind of like, Oh wow, this is really a character who is not human. Um, and he kind of like, I think he sort of like just, embodies that like nonstop. Um, so I, I mean, one of, one of my favorite things about this, this character, it really is like right in this very story at the beginning when, um, you know, the, the doctor is kind of, you know, he's being all eccentric and like, you know, they did the costume change and he's a Viking and he's like, they dropped the clown from the novelization, which is too bad. Um, but, um, you know, he's, he's got the, the character stuff and then he goes in the Jeep. Um, and then they're kind of like talking about like, you know, the, the break in, um, and then he finds the, um, the squash flower and, and they're kind of like, you know, like, you know, doctor, can you like try focusing, please? Like, you know, we've got a problem here he's trying to solve. And he is so immensely involved in the mechanics of what squashed this flower. And he's like, you know, it's like, okay, it's a squash flower. So what? He's like, not to squash, stepped on. And then he does this amazing, like, you know, according to my estimates of like, you know, resistance to vegetable fiber to pressure. And you're like, oh, wow, he is applying his scientific mind to this. But you don't even think he's going to do that because he's just coming at things so so strangely that it, it kind of just gets wrapped up in like, you know, the, the bizarreness here. Whereas I think if, if John Pertwee done that, it would be a very scientific explanation. He would sort of, you know, you could imagine him pulling out a little like, you know, like eyeglass to look at it and stuff like that, like, you know, from the beginning. So you would know what was happening. You would, you would see the progression to like, oh yes, he's, he's, you know, realizing what has happened and it must be something very heavy. Um, but the way that Tom Baker approaches this is, is not that at all. And I think it's probably a confluence of the script, which is all, all credit to Terrence, um, but also then elevated by the performance. And, and so you really see this character, I think, blossom in this way. I told the story earlier in the podcast for the part you weren't present for, but this was the episode I woke up. So it airs on a Monday night on PBS, February 1985. And we had to leave the house for whatever reason halfway through the airing. So I threw in a VHS tape and I taped the last 12 minutes of the episode. And the next morning I woke up with 103 fever and I had the flu and I missed the next three days of school. And this is Tuesday. I can barely move. I'm lying on the floor of the den in the basement of the house and I can barely move and I was you know just incredible fatigue so I just would watch the 12 minutes of the end of part one of robot <laughs> rewind watch it again <laughs> rewind I think I watched those 12 minutes like six times before I finally like all right this is enough even for me but I had nothing else to do so that scene I watched multiple times where I saw that scene six or seven times in that one day plus however many times I've seen robot since then 
So, you know, the way he says, not just squashed, practically pulverized, and then he blows the remains of the dandelion <laughs> dust <laughs> into the brigadier's face. I was mesmerized with Tom Baker and his possibility. And as you say, it's a very alien performance. If you look at the opening moments of part two, these are lines that are written to be delivered in a standard actor's position, standing, maybe sitting. He is lying down with his hat over his face and he talks through the hat. So you can't even see his face move as he's speaking. He's always looking for the unusual way to play the scene. Mm -hmm. So this is the Tom Baker that is going to deliver the lines, but Terrence probably didn't know any of this when he wrote the book because maybe he was there for filming. Maybe he wasn't. Uh, He almost certainly hadn't seen the story on television yet. So given that Terrence is novelizing the script and probably didn't have access to Tom's mannerisms or alien nature. How well do you think this book, and it's the first Tom Baker novelization, how well do you think it captures the essence of Tom Baker that we've just discussed? Yeah, I, I, I think it, I think it captures it really well. In fact, so much so that my guess is that Terence was there. I think he was, you know, looking at the the rushes and the editing or something like that, or or somebody had given him a, a rough copy or something, um, so that he could he could get this this book out pretty quickly, uh, because it it really hews pretty closely, you know, not just to the script but also the performance, and and so I like. I would be very surprised if he hadn't hadn't seen it really, um, and it makes perfect sense because Terence is the you know outgoing script editor, so presumably he would have all the you know context and structure in place to have you know like like seen stuff, um, and he's also been novelizing at this point, so you know like he's he's you know well at least seen scripts. Obviously, he wrote the script, so he's got that that down. Um, but he's probably he's probably got some more happening. Um, so I would I would very strongly guess that he he'd seen some of it. So what are some parts of the book that you think reflect the real Tom Baker and not just the uh, original pre-Tom Baker casting scripted version? Uh, I, I mean, I, I think it's kind of like the like the reactions to, that people have to him really paint him in a in a strong light. Um, so so in a way, it's kind of the negative image of Tom Baker um, because there's a lot of doubt around all the other characters, and and that, and those doubts are I think magnified in the book um, because. You know, the, the brigadier is very much like, I know I've even like experienced this regeneration before, but and I even watched this one happen and I still don't kind of buy it. Like he's he's really still not sure. And then, you know, Sarah is kind of like trying to hold everything together and and just sort of, you know, the doctor wants to run away and she's kind of like quite desperate to kind of bring him back. Um, but there's a sense, I think, that like, you know, like they don't really know who this person is and he might just disappear, right? Um, and then, you know, Harry's obviously like just met him, even though there's sort of, you know, some hints that, that, you know, he's been around longer, but like, you know, like you, you're seeing a lot of things from a lot of different angles on, on this new guy, because it's really important to the readership to establish like that this is a new doctor and yet the same doctor and, you know, he's still the same person after all. Uh, and, and so, I mean, I think that, that in many ways, Tom Baker did walk into like embody the role, right? You know, so it was kind of like it was sort of made for him to kind of step into. Um, so, so in, in that way, it's not that hard. And I think in in hindsight, as we know it, is very hard to separate like Tom Baker from kind of the the, the role. Um, whereas I suppose if you're there at the time, you would have been like, oh, I don't know about this new guy or whatever. But like for us, it's 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 not possible to see that. Um, but I think I do think the book probably actually makes makes a, a lot of effort to do that. And there's a few times where I, I you know read a couple of lines and I was like, oh, right. Yeah. I think I just had that thought in my head and I've obviously absorbed it from the novelization for so long, kind of just like about this doctor and sort of like, you know, a couple of little defining bits. I mean, it's not, it's not a strongly divergent book from, from the, 
TV story, um, like like this is a fairly short one. You know, as you say, it was it was rushed out pretty quick, so it's not a whole lot of like extra added material. But I think it just bits of shading here and there, and just sort of like the way Terence kind of just adds in kind of like you know little thought processes of people really just kind of like steer you in the right direction. I'll show you the most embarrassing part of any novelization that I own, and I think only you would understand why I did this. But the book is based on, of course, Terrence's script, and it was not based on uh, the shooting script. So some of the cliffhangers are in the wrong place. Like episode two underran, they had to bring a couple of minutes from the start of part three. Uh, here, the episode two cliffhanger is where it was supposed to be uh, before like that two-minute chasing across the lab. Also, the scenes for parts three and four got reordered, I think by Christopher Barry in the edit. So what I did is I, at the end of chapter nine... I, in my 11 or 12 year old horrible pencil handwriting, explained that the scenes are out of order. And then I said, go to next page for actual part four. <laughs> I drew myself a flow chart so that I could go back and forth. And then I put a mark here on the uh, next page showing me where the actual part four material begins because the book, of course, drifts back and forth between part three on TV and part four on TV. Uh, Again, I, I was a very hardcore fan, and if I was going to read the book, I needed the book to match the TV experience. So I had to draw arrows to tell me which scenes to read in which order. Right, that's that's amazing. So, so I I did a little markup in the book myself, um, not quite as sophisticated as that, but I put I put a little uh, little stroke um, where the where the cliffhangers were. Um, as, as best I could determine them. Um, and, and of course, in, you know, in some novelizations, it's very hard. Um, and it was funny reading it and coming across my little strokes and being like, like, you know, oh, yeah, right. This is where I decided the cliffhanger was. And you're right, because sometimes it's not quite there. And I'm like, wait, wasn't it back here or something? You know, and it's, you know, it's not always at the end of the chapter, too. Sometimes it's just at the end of a sentence. Um, and, you know, it just flows along. I mean, there's one bit where uh, Sarah faints, um, I think, when when she first meets the robot. Um, and I was like, oh, Terrence, like, <laughs> what is she fainting for? Come on. <laughs> and so she, she faints and then just wakes up, like, sometime later. And they're like, ha-ha, just kidding. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> jokes on you. Let's talk about that then, because this is not just the first fourth Doctor novelization. It's also the first Sarah novelization and the first Harry novelization. So what is... What does the phrase fair hair mean to you? And I, I'm talking to you with uh, three colors in your hair. So okay, I got four colors in my hair, actually. Yes. <laughs> what are the four colors? I see the red and I see the blue and I see the green. Yeah, I got, I got a purple as well. It's a bit hard to see on the, on the Zoom, but yes. Okay, you're sitting partially in shadow, so that's my excuse. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, no, I, I noticed the fair hair. I mean, so... So I actually, I all, I mean, you, I, you can't see it now, but my natural hair color is, is a light brown. And I always thought I was sort of somewhat fair haired, not, not like my, my brother who's blonde, but then we would have said blonde. Um, um, but I think nowadays fair hair kind of means like Peter Davison style hair. So it's pretty, pretty light colored, almost blonde. So does the actor Ian Martyr have fair hair, as Terence repeatedly tells us in the book, or was Harry meant to be light colored, and then they hired a guy with the with dark brown hair? Yes, it's, it's quite possible. Eh? <laughs> so, yeah. And you talked about Sarah fainting, and I noticed that too. I mentioned that at the top of the podcast when I, when I'm breaking down the the text of the book. Do you think this is where Terence just was not sure how to write for a strong feminist character? And Liz Sladen comes into the table read and says, there is no way that I am fainting 
in this scene and changed it um, during filming? Or do you think that Terrence went back and added that in because he didn't know what else to do with a strong female character? Ah, okay. That's actually an excellent question. I don't think it was in the original script. I'm not, I don't have perfect recall, but remember they released that uh, season 12 script book um, with all the different versions and so on. And I don't recall the Sarah fainting from that. So I don't think it was in there. I think he's put it into the novelization. And I think Terrence being Terrence, he's probably gone, oh yes, yes, of course she can be all this women's lib person and so on. But of course she's going to faint at the side of a monster because that's what, you know, the Doctor Who girl needs to do. You know, I can just imagine his thought process doing this. And and so I'm, I'm convinced it's an extra add-on later on. Interesting. So sort of like a Terrence Dix bonus feature. Exactly, yes. Because <laughs> obviously at this point in the television series, Sarah has already kidnapped the Doctor, faced down a Sontaran, survived several dinosaur attacks, survived the Daleks, survived whatever those strange underground Exelonians were supposed to be, yeah. met the Ice Warriors, faced down Agador, met Alpha Centauri, had a spider on the back, and met a white actor playing a Tibetan monk, which I still can't figure out. <laughs> After all that, how is Sarah going to be terrified by a robot? <laughs> I mean, in, in, in character context, in terms of Sarah Jane's own personal biography at this point, she would never faint at the sight of a seven-foot-tall robot. She's seen a lot worse. In, in, in my head canon, it's actually, it's a clue about the oil on the ground that she's found and she slips on the oil and knocks her head off on the ground. So that's, that's why she's unconscious. It is a delayed reaction to bagging her head. Okay. That makes sense. Yes. We'll go with that. And other than the hair color, arguably, arguably being wrong, how do you think the book captures Harry? Cause again, this is the first Harry book and Harry was meant to be, you know, this brash two-fisted young man who was going to be the Ian Chesterton to a planned older actor playing the fourth doctor. And then of course they cast the very physical Tom Baker. Harry becomes unnecessary and quits at the end of his contract. If this were your first exposure to Harry, um, how do you think he comes across as an independent character? And how do you think he's a reflection of the way Ian Martyr played the role? Yeah, I, I think the, the obvious thing coming out of this novel is that Harry's the comic relief. Right. And so, you know, like he gets to be the, the James Bond disguise infiltrator of Think Tank and, you know, and, and he's sort of like guilelessly like excited by this. And, you know, he's kind of just a bit goofy and so on. Um, and I think, you know, if you don't have Ian Martyr's voice in your head when when reading Harry, then that's kind of all there is. Right. And, and I think that, you know, comic relief is an excellent position for him um, because, you know, although Tom Baker's doctor can be very funny, he's not the comic relief, right? He's, he's the driver of the, the events. Um, so comic relief is, is a great role, but I think Ian Martyr brings an extra layer that actually makes Harry extremely likable and, and also very sympathetic. I think even when given some like, you know, pretty sexist lines and stuff like that, and, you know, pretty like, you know, old fashioned kind of like views, you know, that, that don't necessarily hold up these days, but because Ian Martyr is himself very, very likable actor and, and just sort of has this sort of very, solid appeal um you know those kind of work whereas whereas i think if you're just reading the novels you'd sort of be like all right yeah it's just the you know it's it's, it's more like the you know roy castle or something in the the movies <laughs> and so you know if, if we're gonna go with the ian chesterton metaphor uh, yes with roy castle doing the uh doing the roboman march always half a step out yes exactly <laughs> in dallas invasion or 2150 yeah yeah i think ian um uh, so Ian Martyr and Liz Sladen had incredible chemistry 
And even though he's delivering one sexist line after another, the way that he delivers the lines almost apologetically and the way she stands up to him, the two of them got along great in real life. And when you watch the scenes, it doesn't really bother you, or at least it didn't bother me that Ian is this, you know, retrograde right-wing regressive who thinks a woman's place is in the kitchen. That's probably the realistic reading of the character but the way the two of them play it on screen it just doesn't come across that way at all and you forgive harry for saying all these old-fashioned and sexist lines does it come across the same way in the book can you forgive the character of harry for saying these things or does it need an ian martyr and a liz sladen and they're acting genius to make the lines sellable yeah i, th- I think that ian martyr and the and Liz Sladen like factor definitely helps, right? So so that that definitely makes these things more palatable. Uh, I think overall it's not as big a problem as it could be because he's he's always shown to be wrong, right? It's like he says these sexist things, but they're really just there so that she can stand up to him, and she does it expertly. And so she just is constantly kind of like you know knocking him down. Um, and I think there's a bit in this this book where where she does that, and I can't remember what she says, but it's something like you know like you know punch you in the nose or something like that and so you know and you're just like okay yeah cool right it's like i get why it's there you know it was 1974 right they want to they want to show like you know a strong woman so the way to do it is to like have this old-fashioned guy and then she's more modern and she knocks him down it's you know it's a pretty obvious binary in some ways um and so it, it basically works because because the, the i think the the tenor of the of the story is never actually giving him any serious weight it's not like oh yes we actually believe that women's places in the home right it's more like no 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 we're just we're just putting up this kind of straw man argument so that she can knock him down and and i think that's why it works and and the book mostly it works too um and and the thing is for you know for all i criticize terence sticks for kind of you know being a bit of a dinosaur sometimes when you know which which he self-admittedly was um you know because he, he very much claimed that like you know no the role of the companion is to scream and ask questions and he was he was very you know proud of that um and and yet like like he doesn't skimp on it, right? It's like I think he's, you know, he's, he's he, like, like aside from aside from the fainting, like he's he's not actually undermining Sarah in other places. Like like she's actually, you know, like a strong feminist, um, and you know she goes off and does things and you know gets into adventures and so on. Um, and it's actually it's a very good story for her. I mean, essentially she has this this you know nemesis, which is Miss Winters, and you know like and it's it's interesting that you know like she's got this sort of you know female villain to go against. I mean I mean I always find that it's a bit cringeworthy the bit where she she meets winters angelico and then she you know tries to shake the wrong hand um and and i sort of feel like oh that one just feels like such a kind of like you know a poor setup really because it's like okay sure haha yes okay she assumed the man was the director and you know on the other hand it's like it's 1974 probably most directors of institutes that the journalist sarah smith has met have been men like it's it's not actually that unreasonable you know assumption to make um in her line of work and you know like like it's it's both sort of realistic and also like I feel a bit of a you know a, a cheap shot I suppose um, and there's a really good part of the book on page thirty though where I think Terence explains that away better than was done on television. So he writes Sarah was furious with them and with herself. It had been foolish of her to assume that the man was inevitably the director, but she felt that the two of them had expected the mistake and were using it to put her in her place. Mm -hmm. Smiling to conceal her annoyance, she said sweetly, do forgive me. Such a stupid mistake. So Sarah realizes that she's being set up, and they're doing this to her on purpose to put her on the back foot, because they already don't trust her, coming from the unit. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was actually really interesting, actually, to give that that extra shading of like, like, oh, right, it's, you know, it's it's a ploy on their part to kind of like undermine her. Um, and, and I don't know, maybe like, I, I mean, I think it was a ploy on Terence's part to undermine her a bit, right, by, by putting that in in the first place. So I don't know if he's kind of, you know, poking fun at himself a bit, maybe. Um, yeah. It is kind of the genius of Terence, though, because obviously the last time that I had you on, we're talking about Malcolm Hulk. And he invents backstories for all the characters and he goes pages and pages past the script and he talks about stuff that would never be on television. Whereas Terrence is is by and large just giving you what's on screen and he's not inventing very long backstories. If he does, he'll only add one or two sentences, but each sentence is perfectly constructed and contains a nice jab at the script or a wrinkle on the script. Mm So he's not giving you, you know, four chapters on Miss Dawson and how, uh, you know, people stopped asking why aren't you married and they started asking why didn't you get married. He's not going to do that, but he'll add a sentence here or a sentence there that'll put a whole new spin on things. And you don't even realize that he's doing it because it goes by so fast. That's my favorite part of Terrence's writing. These little one sentence or two sentence asides that you don't even realize are uh, adding to the mythology. Yeah, yeah, I, I, hundred percent agree, and I, I, I feel like reading this, even like looking at like you know the thought processes of like you know the the century that's guarding the the vault or whatever, right? And it's sort of like you know, there's only one guy, <laughs> he's you know guarding the most valuable thing in the world, <laughs> and but he's having this thought of like, oh, well, I hear a noise inside, but you know, better not say anything because you know what if what if I look like an idiot and you know and 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 he's sort of like you know, Sergeant Benton said like this, we're three deep out there, they got to go through us to get to you, and then he's like. On the other hand, <laughs> I'm the one on the inside, <laughs> and, and and it's yeah, it's only a couple of sentences, but it's it's it just gives you a little bit of insight into this character. Like like you get you get an enormous amount of bang for your buck, right? You get a couple of sentences, but you get a lot about just you know this red shirt is about to die. <laughs> and the similar moment that I like is when the doctor busts into Think Tank in part two and brings the brigadier with him because he knows what Sarah has discovered. And he knows that they are going to hide the evidence before he arrives because they know he's going to discover it. And he just follows this train of thought, you know, I know, and they know I know, and I know that they know I know, and they know that I know that they know. And the brigadier has to cut him off before he goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, exactly. Like like you get you get the sense that the the doctor would have kept going until the brigadier cut him off, no matter how long that took. (laughs) That's more of Terence's wit. He's 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 giving you an extra wrinkle on the joke. Yeah, I, I mean, actually, I, I love that scene too, where, where the Doctor is like going through Think Tank because, like, the, the way that Terence describes it, he's like, he's like, he's like some visiting university don, and he's sort of going to a kindergarten, and he's like patting people on the head, and he's just like, you know, like correcting things and like, you know, making little comments, and and it's it's just amazing because you can just completely imagine Tom Maker just breezing in with like a personality of like sort of you know radiating three thousand watts, just you know, <laughs> wandering around a laboratory, and everybody being like completely thrown off their game, and he's treating it like this fun day out um, so yeah it's it's really nicely done so that brings me to my next question and i'll preface that by saying here we are we are 41 years past legopolis so legopolis airs march 1981 it is now february 2022 and they are still releasing new tom baker novelizations so last year we get the long overdue paperback cut down release of the Pirate Planet, and it was just announced a couple of weeks ago that they're coming out this summer with the two David Fisher rewrites of the novelizations of Stones of Blood, which is one of the stories that 
created the career that I have today. If I don't watch Stones of Blood, I don't get the job that I have today. One of those stories that influenced me towards a career in the law. And then you have the androids of Tara, which did not influence me to become a android maker or a sword fighter or a befuddled priest, but it's still a terrifically fun story in its own right. <laughs> so we're getting new, well, not new, the audio versions came out a decade ago, but we're getting new print novelizations of the late David Fisher rewriting the Terrence Dix books and making them you know, more funny, more in line with the David Fisher verse, which is a much more sarcastic and over the top mm-hmm. place than any Terrence Dix world. So we're still getting new Tom Baker books more than 40 years after he turned in the hat on the scarf. To what extent, and this is the very first one, to what extent is Doctor Who and the Giant Robot the definitive Tom Baker book? Yeah, I, um, it's 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 an establishing book. I don't know if it's a definitive book. I mean, it's, it, it it kind of like it plops the doctor down and sets him off, and so he hits the ground running, and then and then we go. Um, I mean, I think there's certainly more sort of depthful Tom Baker like books out there, um, as well as other Doctor Who scripts and so on. Um, but it does a very efficient job of just like normalizing, I guess, the new the new Doctor, um, and in many ways the Uber Doctor, like because as you say, like it's been forty years since he left, and we're still we're still captured by this. And and I mean, I think that that maybe. One of the appeals of of the you know the Tom Baker novelization is kind of this callback to like you know what were we doing at the sort of when we were kids we were reading Terence Dix novelizations about Tom Baker's Doctor right it's like that is this such a powerful like draw there um, I was really reminded reading this of like just just how good Terence's stuff is at teaching kids to read and I was just like yeah I just you know I grew up loving reading in large part because I was reading Terence Six novelizations and it just, it just draws you in so effortlessly and just makes you want to read more and, and, and so on. And I'm by no means the first person to say that, right. It's like, that is a very common observation about this stuff. Um, and, and so uh, it's like, I'm not surprised there's a market for more of it. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So if this is not the definitive Tom Baker novelization going off the boards for a moment, what do you think is the definitive Tom Baker novelization Maybe not the novelization of the best story, but the novelization that best encapsulates what it was like to watch and be awed by Tom Baker's Doctor when we we're 11, 12 years old. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, it might be Pyramids of Mars, maybe, because um, that's that's that one feels like it goes above and beyond just just the script. Um, and uh, I, I mean, like like of, of more recent times, I would say um, uh, Doctor Who and the Cricket Man. Um, I found that to be amazing at capturing Tom Baker's voice. And, and I, I would say it's been very difficult for subsequent writers to capture Tom Baker because he's Tom Baker. I mean, there's a few that do, um, but, but there's many more that don't. They, they sort of have this very generic-y Tom Baker-ish thing going on. Um, um, and I think Cricketman, in part because it was very Douglas Adams-y, um, and it was sort of, even though like it's not really a script that's being novelized, um, it's, it's more kind of like, you know, a bunch of scenes that were kind of planned and they never happened. But, but I think like, you know, James Goss really went to town on it. Um, and there, there's just dialogue in there that is, is just uber Tom Baker to me um, that you could absolutely hear the actor saying, even though he never said it. So James Goss has kind of become the go-to Tom Baker guy over the last 10 years, because he's also done novelization, the novelizations of city of death, both the long form and the cut down. And the novelizations of Pirate Planet, the long form and the cut down. And he did, as you say, Doctor Who and the Cricket Men, which 
is very meta because Douglas Adams pitched that as a Doctor Who script. When it didn't get made, he just took it hook, line, and sinker and made it into Life, the Universe, and Everything, which was the third Hitchhiker's book. Hmm. So Cricket Man is almost Doctor Who and the Life, the Universe, and Everything because it's the same scenes and the same quest in the same order, but with the Doctor and Romano, and then Goth throws in some Time Lord mythology. And if you look closely at the book that Tom Baker supposedly wrote, Scratch Man, that's got James Goss's name on the inside cover as the ghost writer. So I'm quite positive that 90% of that is James Goss actually doing the typing with maybe Tom Baker in the room throwing out ideas. So if James Goss is Tom Baker's literal ghost writer, that makes him, I guess, the heir to Terrence because Terrence in the 70s and 80s wrote most of the Tom Baker stories. James Goss is serving that same role today. I, th- I think that's a very, very good observation, actually, because you're right. He's he's probably the one putting the, the words in the mouth. Um, I, I will just say, though, like I read Scratchman not long after I read Cricketman. And wow, they could not be more different. Like I, I found Scratchman just really bizarre, not not all that engaging at first and then just totally wacky by the end. And I actually think there's a lot more Tom Baker in there than we we give credit for, um, because, you know, it also it, it feels somewhat amateurish. And, and I say that because Tom Baker is not really an author, he's an actor. And so it actually feels to me like it's a book written by someone who's not really a writer. Um, and then you've kind of got James Goss sort of propping it up. But but it felt to me way more like, like a, you know, it's it's somebody who's not really a writer putting together a book who has a huge amount of wacky ideas and doesn't really know what to do with them. Um, and then somehow, magically, it kind of actually also works, which is, is quite a surprise to me. Um, but the first half of Scratchman, I was like, what am I reading? Like, this is so bizarre. Um, and just, just kind of off-putting as well. And then it becomes the total trip through Tom Baker's mind that you actually were hoping for all along anyway. Because if memory serves me right, Tom Baker and Ian Martyr plotted the story on set waiting for their cues in the 70s. So the plot is not, you know, it is not an assured Douglas Adams plot where everything leads into the next thing and there's a reason mm-hmm. for every single line of dialogue and it becomes clear later on. They're plotting the thing on the fly. So you have, you know, it starts off with the basic, you know, season 13E, Philip Hinchcliffe gothic horror. And then, as you say, it goes into this funhouse uh, hell with uh, all these crazy characters walking around, illogical things happening. That's as plotted by uh, Tom Baker and Ian Martyr. But the yes. writing itself, you have references in there to Luke and the Sarah Jane Adventures, and you have mm-hmm. references in there to you know, things you wouldn't expect, continuity references you would not expect Tom Baker to have in his head. Oh yes, absolutely. I, I mean, all, all that stuff, of course, is is either James Goss or or some editor who's thrown them in. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, but I think also like like it, it's it's very it's very Stones of Blood actually. It's it starts off as sort of one genre and then it switches to another one. <laughs> and so yeah, I think our, our conversations here are coming very full circle actually. <laughs> yeah, because in a few months we'll be able to see what David Fisher actually did. I know I've listened to the David Fisher audiobook version of androids of tara and i thought listening to it while driving this is a little over the top and he's just you know it's a little too satirical i'm very curious as to how it's going to read on the printed page but i have not heard his audiobook version of stones of blood so i don't know what he put into it um so we've talked a lot about james goss and we've talked a lot about terence dix and this is this is an unfair question and i apologize for springing it on you which style do you prefer, the the Terrence Dick style or the James Goss 
Douglas Adams pastiche style. Ah, well, I have, I have a great out on this. As a, as a polyamorous individual, I don't have to pick one. I can have it all. I mean, I would say, like, they do very different things. Like, if I am looking to, like, you know, sit down and just read a novelization on a lunch break, I'll definitely pick a Terrence Dix one, right? That's, you know, it, it, it is so efficient. It's so lovely. I mean, I would say, like, reading the novelization of Doctor the Giant Robot is more like watching the TV show than actually watching the DVD is. Like, if I pick up the DVD, I'm like, oh, yeah, right, okay, I feel like I'm sort of like in this, this you know, weird nostalgia romp. But reading it, it's in my head so clearly. So that, to me, is an amazing power. I mean, you talked earlier about, you know, saying you knew at least some of that episode, like, upside down and backwards because you'd watched it again and again and you're looking through the novelization to kind of compare where is it correct and where is it not i had the opposite experience like it, it was shown on tv but like i didn't have access to it most of the time it was the novelizations that that kept it alive for us so what was in the novelization to me was doctor who and then it's like sometimes you got a like a big budget movie of of the novelization which was the episode would come on tv um and so there's certainly things in in the novelizations that i forget are not actually in the show because they were just you know i read those novelizations again and again and again and then occasionally saw an episode uh, and you're like oh did they cut a bit and uh, like for example in day of the daleks um the the you know there's the bit where the doctor and joe kind of like appear twice and then they don't appear at the end and when i saw that on on vhs i was like oh they've cut the scene at the end that you know i remember being in there i, I absolutely could have swore blind it was in there and of course it never was <laughs> but right, right. novelization is so powerful uh the other terrence sticks one is the novelization of of the mutants where the marshal says to uh, Jaeger, you know, it was a booby trap and you were the booby. It is yes. the perfect line. And then you watch <laughs> it on television and it's not there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's an expression in French, which I, I love, called um, l'esprit d'escalier. And it means the wit of the staircase. It's basically when you're heading up the staircase to go to bed and you think of what you should have said. <laughs> it's like, oh, if only I'd said that at the right time. And I feel like that's Terrence Dick sometimes when he's writing these novelizations. He's like, oh, that would have been the perfect line. <laughs> and well, it's, you know, it's six months later, but I'll put it in the book. It's very funny you mentioned that because my people have the same word. Uh, but in Yiddish, it's called trepverter, which means stair words. Ah, the words oh, that occur to you on the stairs, walking downstairs from the argument, that would have won you the argument had you remembered them before <laughs> you started going downstairs. And there's a German right, right. variant on it as well, I think called trepverten. But I wow. guess that is, a, that is a phrase that transcends language, because the French it, have a word for it, and so do the, it really does. the Yiddish language. So let's segue then into the politics of this book, speaking of depressing. Robot is... Terrence Dick's doing a pastiche of, you know, King Kong and, um, you know, the mad scientist, as Professor Kettlewell's hair will tell you. <laughs> but also at the same time, this is a 1970s John Pertwee era story. So you have, you have the scientists in the SRS, which is almost certainly a play on the American college students um, revolutionary group, the SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. So you have Terrence playing on all these real-world things. And we think of Terrence as being light and fluffy and not quite as political as Barry Letts. This is, when you read it today, an incredibly timely book, right? Because you have Kettlewell is trying to head off ecological collapse, and we're trying to do the same thing today. You have the near-fascist group of scientists trying to take over the world to run things along their lines. And here in real life, we have, you know, scientists or science adjacent professionals like 
Dr. Quote unquote Jordan Peterson and all these American medical right-wing scientists who are trying to say that the COVID vaccine is bad and children shouldn't be vaccinated and we're you know, ruining ourselves with these vaccines. You have evil scientists in real life as much as you have evil scientists in this book trying to take over the world. So to what extent is Terrence Dix commenting on the politics of 1974? And to what extent is this book even more accurate today than it was at the time he was writing it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that the, the, the nice thing about Terrence is that he's not he's not really trying to shove it down your throat, right? He's he's making some observations, and for sure he brings stuff in from the time, and he's he's kind of like making these commentaries and so on. But he's not doing it with the sort of fervor of Malcolm Hulk, right? You know, you, you read a Malcolm Hulk book, and you really know the politics, right? They're they're on the sleeve and everything. Um, whereas with Terence, it's kind of like like I feel like he's got a tongue in the cheek like all the time, kind of like. Yeah, 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 you know, like, I mean, I love that he's, you know, he has that bit about like, you know, Kettlewell, you know, he's got this grand vision for like, you know, like, of course, the world should be run on, you know, like, like better principles and stuff like that in, in terms of like ecology. And Terrence is like, yeah, but who's going to be able to afford that, right? <laughs> it's sort of like, and you can just imagine that's exactly Terrence sitting in a club somewhere and somebody says, you know, Barry Lett says like, you know, well, you know, Terrence, we need to like, you know, like stop burning fossil fuels and save the planet. And Terrence going, yes, Barry, but like, you know, it's, it's going to be very expensive. So, you know, <laughs> And, and you know, you almost feel like he probably wrote that conversation down in the book, um, and and that to me is is very classic Terence, um, because I remember when I found out that uh, you know Terence Dix and Paul Cornell became very good friends in the in the very early days of the New Adventures, and I was like, really, the two of them? Like, isn't one like uber left wing, and and one is kind of you know like establishment right wing, but they can coexist. And and actually, one thing I always say about like the boomers is they don't mind if you disagree with them. Right. That's, that's the one saving grace they really have is like, you know, they're, they're perfectly happy to entertain completely opposite views to their own. Um, and that is you know not always the case with the rest of us on the left, because we're kind of like, no, I will brook no disagreement. And so, you know, Terrence, you know, and, and I met Terrence a few times. I had breakfast with him one time. Um, and, you know, that was him all over, right? He was sort of like, he's like, oh, yes, well, you know, like I have my own views, but, you know, whatever. And, you know, he was very much in favor of like, you know, colonization and things like that, that you kind of feel like are kind of horrific these days. Um, but, you know, he was just like, oh, well, the British Empire was a good thing, wasn't it? You know, <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, it's a window into history and sort of a time that's passed now. Um, and yet, because he didn't really take it all that seriously, you kind of don't really get too worked up around it. And he was born in the 1930s, so for him, that is his frame of reference. And when he's, you know, four years old, the war breaks out, four or five years old. Uh, so, so for him, that's just what he grew up with, and it makes perfect sense to him. It, it really is, yes. It's, it's a very difficult thing. And, and I think, like, childhood has such a power over us, which I think is also part of the appeal of these books and Doctor Who and so on. Like, you know, this reading this book just transports me back to being 10 years old. And, you know, I've just met Peter Davison and I go home and I read the book and I'm just like, oh, this is amazing. Right. And so the idea that like you, you, you know, you want to kind of like go back and visit that sometimes. And the idea that like the things you were taught actually might've been really wrong is really hard to let go of. And, and actually for sort of like more benign example, I'm re you know, the thing about like dinosaurs having feathers, you like, but no, that's just not what we learned, right? We learned there were these fearsome reptilian things. And the idea that they could be giant chickens is somehow really off-putting because you have to undo the stuff you've learned. And, you know, as a childhood-like thing like dinosaurs is like really strong and powerful. Whereas I bet like, you know, like kids like your daughter or whatever are not like worried about dinosaurs having feathers if that's what they've grown up with now. Um, so it's, it's very, it, you know, it's very dependent on what you've learned um, and when you've learned it.
it's almost as if you are here in Brooklyn and you overheard the conversation we literally had yesterday. Because <laughs> literally yesterday, on the, on the walk home from school, my kid is lecturing me on geology and Pangea and how the ground that we're walking on in New York was adjacent to Africa millions and millions of years ago. <laughs> and how if you were to travel back in time to this very spot, on our block you would have seen dinosaurs and i said right if you were to travel back in time 70 million years you would have seen the tyrannosaurus rex chasing down and eating a brontosaurus and she says daddy there's no such thing as a brontosaurus well yes but there was in the 70s yeah <laughs> so they, yeah and again there hasn't been a brontosaurus for decades but in my head there's still brontosauruses I mean, they're in Invasion of the Dinosaurs, so it must be right. <laughs> and they're also in uh, Doctor Who and the Giant Robot. I tell you, Brigadier, there's nothing to worry about. The Brontosaurus <laughs> is large and placid. And stupid. And stupid, as Harry walks in. And stupid. <laughs> All right, coming full circle to the Brontosaurus, I think this is a good uh, place to jump off. So, Stacy, once again, where can we find you online or on YouTube, as the case may be? And what are your next projects coming out that we should be looking out for? Uh, yes, so so I'm not I'm not really a public online person. I mean, I have Facebook for friends and um, so on. But, um, I would say I'm more available through my books. I uh, edit the Outside In series. Uh, we're just about to go live with the um, Twin Peaks Outside In. I'm proofreading it at the moment. Um, but after that, will be a classic Doctor Who redone. So and that will be coming out in 2022 because it's our 10th anniversary of Outside In publication. So we're redoing Classic Who. And so I say, yeah, stay tuned for really cool, exciting new takes on Classic Doctor Who. Again, even newer. <laughs> and I will have a very contrary take in there on a beloved story that I used to love and now hate with a fiery passion. So you can look forward to that as well. And I cannot wait. <laughs> All right, Stacy, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun talking about Terran Sticks and James Goss and Brontosauruses with you. And hopefully we'll have you back on in a couple more months for another book. I'd love to. <laughs> Next time, the return of the Autons, and the debut story, but not the debut novelization, for Joe and the Master. Back to John Pertwee and the Third Doctor. So soon after, this book made me forget that he ever existed. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. I'm Jason, your host, and editor, and producer. Special thanks to my special guest, Stacy Smith. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor and can also be found for the time being on Spotify, my apologies, and Google Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, and you can also find me on the Trap One podcast from time to time. I write about Doctor Who on Twitter using the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Next time, we're discussing Doctor Who and the terror of the Autons, and again joined by a very special guest. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages.